Good morning, New York Met fans. How are we all doing today? Uh, happy Thursday. Beautiful weather here in the New York area. Enjoy it while you can. Uh, it's a good day to play some autumn baseball, if you still do play baseball. Uh, in the major leagues, there's only a few teams still playing baseball. Uh, would we like to talk about them? Why not? Let's talk about it. This playoff series has been unique. The Houston Astros, the Boston Red Sox, the Atlanta Braves versus the Los Angeles Dodgers. It's been a thrill a minute. What a ride. What's going to happen next? Well, the Dodgers have their back to the wall. They will be going with a bullpen game against maybe the toughest pitcher in the playoffs, Max Fried. We'll see what happens there. Uh, I think this is night. Atlanta more or less is going to have to put them away. Even though the Dodgers will be going to Atlanta, uh, Game 6, they'll have Scherzer going. And uh, Game 7, Walker Buehler. So you never know what's going to happen on any given day, but uh, Atlanta loses tonight. They're going to be thinking about Scherzer and Buehler at home, and the pressure I think will kind of shift back on the Braves. But tonight, uh, it's going to be a classic. Yes, indeed. Everyone should be watching this one. Freed. Going against a bullpen game. The Dodgers got their backs to the wall. We'll see what happens. And how about those Houston Astros? Just when they couldn't pitch anymore, couldn't get anything out of their starting pitching, they came in with a fantastic dominating performance yesterday. Now they go back up home up 3-2. to two. Uh, The beginning game of all this, the playoff season, I predicted a Houston-Dodger uh, World Series. I'm still sticking with it. I never give up on my teams that I pick, so... I think Houston will put Boston away at home and expect the craziness of the Los Angeles Dodgers to prevail. Don't bet on it. Don't listen to me when it comes to money in sports. But we'll see. We will see. And uh, that's why I never make concrete predictions because it always comes back to bite you in the ass. Uh, but if you go by the numbers, it's a Houston-Los Angeles World Series and never say never. That being said, never say never on the health of Carlos Carrasco. Maybe it was his injuries all this time uh, that was curtailing his performance during the course of the year. Well, it was announced yesterday that he underwent right elbow surgery. So maybe this is what we need. We need a healthy Carlos Carrasco coming into the uh, 2022 campaign. And it was a difficult year. Uh, and it looks like it was a physical issue beyond the torn right hamstring that cost him much of the season because he went underwent surgery yesterday to remove a bone fragment from his right elbow, the team announced Wednesday. The surgery was performed by Mets medical director, Dr. David Alchek, who uh, is really earning his pay the last few years. They're working him hard. Uh, and that was performed at the Hospital for Special Surgery in Manhattan. The expectation is Carrasco will resume baseball activities this winter and be ready for spring training. So that is good news. If we have the Carlos Carrasco that pitched before he came to the Mets, we'll be fine. Now the other thing we need to do is probably get inside his head and make sure he can pitch a good first inning because the first inning was a house of horrors for Carlos Carrasco. Now, sources are saying that uh, Carrasco knew about the bone fragment during the season, but after consulting with Al Alchek, Elected to pitch through it. And uh, I'm not sure if that's always a good thing. The pride of the athlete takes over and he thinks he can do it. But as you can see, the performance 
did not live up to the expectations. Now, the 34-year-old Carrasco uh, sustained the torn right hamstring injury in spring training, and you wonder if just him favoring the hamstring in his recovery had something to do with an elbow injury. Well, sometimes one thing leads to another. And Carlos didn't make his Met debut until uh, July, uh, actually the end of July, July 30th. And uh, he was kind of the sleeper in the, believe it or not, he was a sleeper in the Lindor deal. Uh, but even still, we expected much better from him. He pitched 12 starts this year. He went 1-5 with a 6.04 ERA and a 1.435 whip. Those are kind of like Matt Harvey numbers. We should have just kept Matt Harvey. But uh, I do have faith in Carlos, and I think he will be a hell of a lot better next year. And he was finding a groove a little bit in late August and September, if you recall. Uh, he did shorten his minor league rehab assignment. Uh, his highlights did include a three-hitter over seven innings with touring runs allowed against the Giants on August 26th. And that's not too shabby because the Giants were red hot at that time. And he also had a six-inning start against the Phillies on September 8th in which he allowed two runs. Now, most of the time when you have injuries like this, you do have that occasional good game and you, you know, suffer one or two. It's a bumpy ride the whole time. Depends on the day of the week and how you're feeling. Uh, but he did finish, and this was the disappointing part, and this is where the injury really may have started taking effect. He finished with two clunkers, as you recall, against the Brewers and the Braves in which he allowed a combined 10 earned runs over nine innings. And uh, we were wondering what would the deal was with Carrasco. And I always say that when you have a bad year like you did, like Carlos Carrasco, injuries are involved. And I'm, I know nothing besides what you guys know. But I also think that's a story with Jeff McNeil. He was hiding something. Uh, he might, you just don't hit the way McNeil did all these years and not be hiding an injury. Uh, even Michael Conforto, when he was in that slump for three or four months, I'm sure th he had ailments too, because when you're a natural hitter like that, there's usually more to the picture than meets the eye. But on the team side, you just don't want these injuries to become a lingering concern and be repetitive over the years. So like I said, it looks like the issue was fixed with Carrasco, and we'll see what will happen there. And uh, I think the Mets going to feel a little bit secure heading into the offseason with this. Uh, they got DeGrom and Walker. Uh, all three are under contract for 2022. Uh, I think next year's Walker is pardon upon a walk year. And I think DeGrom is probably locked in for two more years. I'm not sure the details. Uh, and then you also have uh, Tyron McGill and David Peterson, who are under control as pre-arbitration eligible players. And throwing this in the mix, Stroman and Syndergaard, I think they will sign Stroman long-term. And Syndergaard, uh, I think both are going to agree to a qualifying offer uh, and have him come aboard for one more year. But you never have enough starting pitching, and this year was proof positive. Uh, so the Mets are going to have to invest in pitching. You do not win in today's game without starting pitching. And it looks like the whole staff had the way to playoffs are. You need middle relievers and closers, too. Is there such a thing as a closer anymore? But anyway, uh, you do need arms. And the Mets going to need all the help they can get. <clears throat> but probably the biggest concern right now is Jacob DeGrom, who missed the second half of the season with what team president Sandy Alderson called a low-grade tear of the ulnar collateral ligament. Now, DeGrom, who only pitched uh, basically half the season, he came in in July 7th, he resumed throwing in the final month of the season. 
The high end of the free agent starting pitching market will include names such as Max Scherzer, Robbie Ray, and Kevin Gausman. Will the Mets dip into that market? We shall see. Uh, the Mets will have to decide how aggressive they want to be in pursuing Stroman. I think they have to go all out. I think Stroman wants to be a Met. I think he's made for the New York market. I know he's a controversial figure. He says things that probably most players wouldn't say to the media or on Twitter. But he's a gamer. And you can see he's one hell of an athlete. I mean, I, I, I haven't seen a Mets starting, pitching field, starting pitcher field like that since uh, Ronnie Darling, I think. <laughs> he, he was quite the defensive position player. Uh, now, Syndergaard only pitched two innings a season after his rehab start from Tommy John surgery, uh, but we'll see about that qualifying offer. Qualifying offer. It'll be $18.4 million for a year, so we'll see what happens there. Uh, what else is happening? Uh, well, it looks like Billy Bean was actually considering coming to the Mets, uh, but he... And I give him credit for this. He didn't come for the money. He didn't come for the glory. He came. He stayed in Oakland because of his family. And I would respect someone who makes a decision based on his family decisions. And uh, to me, nothing comes for baseball more than family. Uh, so he did the right thing, and that was good to see. Uh, he did say his family is more important in his career, and I agree wholeheartedly. Uh he denied the fact that he had a strong objection We're working in Sandy Alderson and Steve Cohen. Actually, he said, the only reason I would consider leaving what I'm doing now is because of Sandy Alderson and Steve Cohen. Uh, and he said that last night. And that begged the question of why Bean removed himself from consideration for the Mets job search. To him, the answer was simple. His family is more important in his career. And it's good to see that in this day and age. He said, creating chaos in my children's lives for my own ambition feels like a selfish thing to do. Uh, now, Bean has twin girls entering the same Catholic high school, and that's a tough period for any adolescent, the high school years. So he didn't want to unsettle that. And it was the same school that his wife attended. So he's keeping it all in the family, and that's cute. Uh, they're, they're involved in sports, and they built a life there. So Billy Bean is happy, and that's kind of what I figured. I also know that he has part ownership in the A's, and that may have a little bit of influence, too. I think he owns 4% of the A's. So, uh, and he also has ownership in two European soccer teams and a cricket team. So he's a well-invested man. So he's not only smart on the baseball field, but he knows how to make a dollar off the field. Uh, Bean has no patience for a narrative that young executives are reluctant to work with Alderson or Cohen. He says he sees the job as a tremendous opportunity to work with a passionate, well-resourced owner while being mentored by the executive who made his career. And let's not forget, if it probably wasn't for Sandy Alderson, there would be no Billy Bean. Because Billy Bean succeeded Alderson as GM in 1997, and the rest is history. And Brad Pitt is glad it is history because there would have been no money ball without Billy Bean and Sandy Alderson. Uh, and... <laughs> The low-budget success of the A's made Bean seem like a genius. He was able to tear teams down and just build them up again right away. They never went to the big dance, but they're always competitive most every year. Again, it's tough to do when you don't have a payroll. But Billy Bean would have had the payroll with the Mets, so we'll see what happens there. But Bean going on to uh, 
a longer stay with the A's by saying he won't come to the Mets is a good thing. And I think bigger days ahead for the A's. I think they'll either A, get the big ballpark in Oakland, or B, move to Vegas. We shall see. But, again, Bean was a little irritated by the speculation that he wouldn't want to work on the Rolderson again, and adamant that a career-making chance awaits whoever the Mets hire, and I agree. Uh, he even went on to say it's an amazing opportunity for a young executive. You get to work with one of the smartest executives of all time. I had that opportunity, and I've been very happy with the way my career has gone. I'm glad that he actually spoke up because the Mets were getting a lot of backlash. I was one of them. I'm wondering, okay, why does no one want to come here? But Billy Bean actually said he would have, and that's a good thing to see. So not all is bad in Met world when it comes to that. Uh, what else is happening? Uh, well, you guys have been getting a kick out of the uh, recap of the 73 Mets. I ran a few games down from the 73 series against the Reds. And now, well, today's the anniversary that the A's actually won the World Series. But how about we talk about what everyone was expecting going into the 1973 World Series. You ready? Grab a cup of Joe and let's go. Now, the Mets' improbable climb from last to first in the final month led them to a big win over the Cincinnati Reds. And the, the Reds were not to be taken lightly. They were the big red machine, and they had the best record in baseball. So what the Mets did from being a last-place team in mid-August to beating the world, the best team in baseball in October says a lot of how hot they got, and timing is everything. And that shows you in playoffs anything can happen. But now they had to go against the reigning world champion Oakland A's. Now, we all know the Mets' 73 team was mostly about pitching. They were led that year by Cy Young Award winner Tom Seaver, who was 19-10, and 10, and the league leader in RA in 2.08, and strikeouts 251, and the league leader in complete games in 18. Tom was on fire that year. He had one of his best years, and he won three Cy Young Awards total in his career and would strike out a record 200-plus batters for eight straight seasons. He led the league in that category five times, wins four times, and ERA three times. The all-time Mets left-hander Jerry Kuzman was second to Seaver on the staff. Kuz had a great year, just a tough luck pitcher. He had the Gromlock year. He was 14-15, and 15, but don't let that fool you. He had a 2.84 ERA with 12 complete games, three shutouts, and 156 strikeouts. Now, as always, as all the diehard Mets fans know, Kuzman's career was overshadowed by Seaver's, but Kuz would be in the league top 10 in strikeouts eight times, ERA six times, and wins four times. In the postseason, he was 4-0 with 31 strikeouts in 40 innings with a 3.79 ERA. He was a clutch pitcher without a doubt. And in 1972 Rookie of the Year, John Matlack was the latest Mets superstar pitcher. I loved watching Matlack, and he even had tough luck. He lost 16 games. He did win 14, but he had a 3.20 ERA. 14 complete games, 3 shutouts, and his 205 strikeouts were third in the National League deceiver. Now, Matlack would be a four-time 15-game winner. As we recall this year, he was retired and put in, he wasn't retired. He was put into the Mets Hall of Fame this past year, and that was good to see. Long overdue. Uh, Matlack made three all-star teams, and uh, he was in the league top 10 in strikeouts seven times, shutouts six times, ERA, and complete games four times each. So that big three was something else. Sort of like the Smoltz-Glavin-Maddox uh, combo. Probably a little bit below that, but you get the idea. 
Now, George Stone, he was the pleasant surprise. He was the sleeping beauty in 1973. He had come over from Atlanta before the season and was the staff surprise at 12-3 with a 2.80 ERA in 27 games. One of the game's top relief pitchers of his era was the Mets' leading fireman of the bullpen. Our friend and lovable by all, Tug McGraw. He was 5-6 with 25 saves and 3.87 ERA. Now, those numbers may not seem startling, but he came a long way as the season progressed. He was having a horrible year, and he was the team's main cheerleader as well. And he was the one. It's a long story, and I think we went over this on a podcast before that led the rally cry, you gotta believe, and it's funny how that all worked out. Uh, One day again, we'll rehash that, but let's continue on with this team. Tug would pound his glove on his thigh after a big strikeout or at the end of a game, which was the message of affection to his wife, Phyllis. On August 22nd, now this is what I was talking about before, he had gone 5-0 with 12 saves, allowing just four earned runs in 43 innings. Although he never led the league in saves, he came in second twice and was in the top 10 seven times, making two all-star teams. Now also on that team, we had veteran Ray Sadecki. He was a good pitcher in this time. He was 5-4, one save, 3.39 ERA, and 87 Ks in 116 innings. And he was... Uh, Filling the void wherever they needed. He did a fine job as a starter and reliever that season. And let's not forget, he won a World Series as the 20-game winner for the 64 Cardinals. Uh, Jim McAndrew won all his leftovers from the 69 team. He had a rough year, 3-8, ERA, and one save. And Buzz Capra was 2-7 with four saves and 3.86 ERA. And better things were ahead for Bud, uh, Buzz as he would go on to lead the NL ERA. Uh, National League in ERA in 74 with the Atlanta Braves. Now, the Met offense certainly was not big by any means. The story always remains the same except for a few bright spots in Met history. If there was only another bat or two in this lineup, pitching staff of the 70s may have gone to more World Series. And that's just not hyperbole. I actually do believe that. They had nobody in that metal lineup. Uh, Rusty Stop was the main run producer. He led the team with 76 RBIs, 36 doubles. 74 walks and a 361 on base percentage. Now he had 15 homers with a 270 on average and 77 runs scored. Staub was a six-time All-Star who had a career of 2,716 hits and became one of the game's best pinch hitters later in his career. Now young slugger John Milner hit a team-best 23 homers, 72 RBIs, 12 doubles, 239 average, 69 walks, and a 329 on base percentage. Wayne Garrett hit a career-high 16 homers, 20 doubles, 58 RBIs, 256 batting average, uh, 348 OBP, and 76 runs scored. And how about Felix Mian? What a great second baseman he was. Very underrated. He led the team in hits, batted 290, 23 doubles, and 82 runs scored. Mian, a three-time All-Star, was one of the best defensive second basemen of his time. A two-time Gold Glove winner and was in the league... uh, among the league leaders in fielding five times, Milan was the toughest man in the league to strike out four times in his career, including 1973. So he choked up and he made sure he made contact. Now, Cleon Jones, what a stretch run he had in September that year. Uh, he had 11 homers, 13 doubles, 48 RBIs, 260 average, 92 games. And like I said, he was red hot during the stretch. And he was the men outfielder for 12 seasons, batting over 293 times. And even though they weren't great offensively, these guys were the glue of the club. Bud Harrelson and Jerry Grody, they were outstanding defensively. 
if not the best, one of the best at their positions year in, year out. Grody had one homer, 10 doubles, 32 RBIs, and a 256 average in 84 games and won a game's top defensive uh, defensive catchers, I should say, and played a major role in the success of the Met pitchers. And the Met pitchers swore by him and Rube Walker, the pitching coach. And they were a lot of help to that, that staff and uh, a lot of credit is given to them too, also for the great pitching the Mets had. Now, Buddy, one of my favorite players, batted 258, 348 on base percentage, 12 doubles, 3 triples, 20 RBIs. And he was a two-time All-Star and a Gold Glove winner. Mm -hmm. Don Hahn uh, had become the main center fielder, uh, 93 games, 229, two homers, 10 doubles, 21 RBIs, was not known for his hitting, but would have a solid World Series. Willie Mays closed out, closed out his Hall of Fame career that season with six homers, 10 doubles, 25 RBIs, and batted 211. He would have had a good postseason in the few appearances he made. Mays made 24 All-Star appearances. Now, some of those years, they played two games in a year to benefit the pension fund. But nonetheless, he did play 24 All-Star games with 12 gold gloves, and he was an MVP twice. Mays led the league in homers and stolen bases four times. He led the league in slugging five times, triples three times, and run score twice. He won a batting title, finished runner-up three times, and led the league in hits once. A lifetime 302 hitter with 328 hits, 12th all-time, and a 557 slugging percentage, 20th all-time. Now look at these career numbers for the Say Hey Kid. He hit 660 homers, 4th all-time, 523 doubles, 42nd all-time, 140 triples, 64th all-time, 2062 runs scored 7th all-time, 1464 walks, 21st all-time, 338 stolen bases, 118th all-time, and 1903 RBIs, 11th all-time. I hope you kids out there are writing all these numbers down because you're going to be quizzed later on each and every one of these categories. Now, the Mets bench included Ed Cranepool, batted 239 with 12 doubles, one homer, and 35 RBIs. He played 100 games in the outfield and at first base. Steady Eddie is one of the best all-time pinch hitters, all-time Met leaders in games played, and a fan favorite. He goes back to the original 62 Mets, and everybody loved the Crane. The club's two pinch hitters behind Crane Poor, veteran Kenny Boswell, who was a member of that 69 amazing team, and Jim Beecham, who batted 279 with 14 RBIs that year. Also on the bench were backup catchers Duffy Dyer and Ron Hodges, infielder Teddy Martinez, and outfielder George Stork Theodore, a fan favorite. Now we have to give time and due to the Oakland A's. The A's were a star-studded flamboyant bunch of players who changed the look of Major League Baseball. They were known as the Swingin' A's and were baseball's most raucous bunch. The A's had long hair, sporting mustaches and beards. Sometimes that was not done in baseball in the late, since the late 1800s. I think Reggie was the first one to actually grow a mustache. Uh, and uh, this all came about because Reggie arrived in spring training 1972 with a beard. And he opened the doors to all this mustache madness that became the Oakland A's. And even owner Charlie Finley would soon pay his players $200 each if they grew facial hair for a Father's Day mustache promotion. Show me $200, even I'll grow a mustache. And that was 1973, Muddy. So the team's owner, the eccentric Charles O. Finley, had moved the franchise from Kansas City to the Bay Area in 1968. 
He had his team wear green jerseys, alternated with bright yellow jerseys that had Big A's logo on their left breast. On Sundays, the team wore traditional white uniforms with white and gold trim. And I remember those A's uniforms. They were hip. You know, all those color combinations, that more than anything made me an A's fan. I actually bought an A's t-shirt with a logo, well, I did and my parents did, and an A's batting helmet. I think at that time, they were probably my second favorite team in baseball until they played the Mets in 73. Just due to the fact they were so colorful. They didn't draw flies out in Oakland, but they were colorful. Uh, and like I said, uh, he introduced ball girls to the foul, foul balls, to retrieve foul balls and foul, foul timeout Boston foul territory. And one of the first was Debbie Jane Sevier. Get out your trivia books and write this one down. Who saved her money and began to sell cookies. Debbie later became successful entrepreneur Debbie Fields of the famous Mrs. Fields Cookies. So when you're having a Mrs. Fields cookie, think of Charlie O and the Swingin' A's. Now, although they won three straight championships, they suffered from poor attendance in the large metro area of the San Francisco Bay. Uh, Charlie O gave his players good bonuses signed with the club, but then as they became stars, he refused to give them big increases, and that was always a problem in Oakland. When he began to lose players to free agency, he tried to sell them off until Commissioner Bowie Coon stepped in. Maybe most famously, he used the name a mule named Charlie O as the team's mascot. Uh, he paraded him around the field and brought him to press conferences to any of the media events. Now, the 73 A's, let's get to specifics, had finished regular season 94 and 68, six games ahead of the Kansas City Royals. The Royals were making a big splash. They were only an expansion team and that came into existence in 69. And the A's pitching staff consisted of three 20-game winners, Catfish Hunter, who was a future Hall of Famer. Uh, he went 21-5, 3.34 ERA, 11 complete games, three shutouts. He would win 20 games or more, five straight seasons. That was kind of Catfish's claim to fame, as you recall. And he pitched a perfect game and won the 74 Cy Young Award, leading the league in ERA and wins. And next was the colorful Vida Blue. What a year he had in 72. Well, he carried that over into 73, too. Uh, he was 29 with 3.2 ERA, 158 Ks, four shutouts, and 13 complete games. Like I said, he won the 71 Cy Young Award and was a three-time 20-game winner. The big three was rounded off by Kenny Holtzman, a crafty left-hander. I loved Kenny. I loved him with the Cubs, and I loved him with the A's. That's when I first started following baseball, and I was big into Kenny Holtzman. He was 21-13 with a 2.97 ERA, 157 Ks, four shutouts, and 16 complete games. Holtzman had thrown a no-hitter with the Chicago Cubs when he was a 17-game winner in 69 and 70. In Oakland, he won 19 games, or better, three straight years from 72 to 74. So what a three they had. So you had two teams going on with relatively three pitchers who could have been Cy Young Award candidates every year. And John Odom, whom Finley had wear the name Blue Moon on his uniform for publicity reasons, had an off year at 5-12. and 12. But he himself was a three-time 15-game winner. Odom was a quick runner at times, was used as a pinch-hitting role. Now, the A's bullpen was legendary. They, I'm not going to say they kind of reinvented the bullpen game, uh, but they were one of the first teams that really utilized the bullpen to the max, and they had one of the game's best relievers, Hall of Famer Raleigh Fingers, who, believe it or not, pitched 126 innings. That's unheard of these days. Starting pitchers don't even pitch 126 innings. Well, he went 7-8 with 22 saves and a 1.92 ERA. Now, hats off to Raleigh, because in his career, he would save 341 games, 910th all-time, 
which was the most at the time of his retirement. He won a Cy Young and MVP award and led the league in saves three times. Fingers adopted his trademark handlebar mustache prior to the 72 season. And also out of the bullpen, it wasn't too shabby at all. You had Darrell Knowles, a very accomplished reliever at 6-8-9 saves, 3.9 ERA. Horatio Pena, 6-3, 8 saves, 2.76. And Paul Lindblad, 1-5, 3 saves, 3.67 ERA. Now, in all that pitching, the A's had an even more powerful offense, although no one hit over 300 except Jesus Salou came over in August with a 306 average. But did they need to? Because they had the pitching. But they were still loaded. They were perfect, perfect example of how each individual contributed to a team effort. Hall of Famer, Reggie Jackson. He was the 73 AL MVP, by the way. Uh, he had 32 homers, 117 RBIs, 22 steals, and a 293 batting average. And he would lead the AL in homers four times. And Mr. October, as the kids used to like to call him, would play on five World Series championship teams in the 1970s. And who was the captain of that A's team? Well, it was none other than Sal Bando. And he had a great year. 29 homers, 32 doubles, 98 RBIs and a 287 batting average, and he was one of the top RBA men in the league during that era, making the league's top five four times. From 1969 to 1977, Bando would be in the league's leaders in home runs four times and walks every season, so he had a good eye. It wasn't about always batting average with Sal. He had a good eye and got on base quite often. At number 72, when Gene Tennis blossomed in the World Series, he was the World Series MVP that year. Well, he continued that on through in 73 with 24 homers, 18 doubles, 84 RBIs, and a 259 batting average. And he was uh, the first baseman in uh, 73, and he played a little catcher. Tennis led the league in walks twice and was in the top 10 in that category eight times. So there's another guy. They were patient at the plate these days. He had a good eye, and he was in the league's top 10 in on-base percentage six times and homers four times. So even though he didn't have a high batting average, Gene Tennis was getting on base, so you uh, sabermetric fans over there, I know you love Sal Bando and Gene Tennis. And how about Joe Rudy? He was one of the best defensive outfielders of his era. He had 12 doubles, 12 homers, I should say, 25 doubles, 66 RBIs, and a 270 batting average. Rudy hit over 300 twice and led the league in hits, doubles, and triples, one time each. So he was an accomplished player defensively and offensively. And Derek Johnson, a veteran who could always hit for power, he had 20 homers, 81 RBIs, and a 246 batting average. And he came over from the Phillies in May and was often used as a designated hitter. Now, remember, the American League was using a designated hitter. That started in, what, 72, I think? So 73 was a full year of the DH. And catcher Ray Frosty, and uh, he was, who just passed away, uh, great Oakland A ambassador, great announcer, and he was a fine defensive backstop, and he hit 256 and 73. Now, another thing that the A's were known for was speed. It was a major part of the A's offensive attack. And they were the kings. They had speed at the top of the lineup. Billy North led off, and he was the 73 AL stolen base leader. He had 53 steals, and he batted 285. And, of course, the spark plug for the A's was six-time AL stolen base champion Burke Campanaris. And he was one of the best games, one of the best leadoff men in the game. Uh, and he would bat second a lot of times with Billy North in the lineup. And he also made six all-star appearances and led the league in triples and at-bats. 
Uh, Alan Lewis, the Panamanian Express. Now, this is before Herb Washington. He played 35 games in the regular season, never had an at-bat. He was solely used as a pinch runner, and he had seven steals. In his six-year career, he was primarily using that role and just scored a run, and had just scored a run in the 73 ALCS versus Baltimore. On the bench, they had Jesus Alou, 306 batting average, 108 bats, always clutch. So they had some good guys coming off the bench. Angel McGuire, 224. Vic Davalia, all these guys were great utility players, as well as Ted Kubiak, Mike Andrews, and Manny Trio. So the A's had players who fit every role well. Now, the A's would also have to play the World Series without their top base stealers. Billy North got injured at the end of the season and was finished for the year. Uh, in future episodes, we'll go into that World Series. That's a little preview in case you weren't around back then as to what was happening. So cool stuff indeed, I think you'll admit. Uh, what else happened on that day? Uh, in 1973, talking about that World Series, well, I'm going to cut right to the chase. Uh, yeah, the hometown A's captured their second consecutive World Championship, defeating the Mets 5-2 when Darryl Knowles coming out of bullpen with two outs and two out in the ninth. It's Wayne Garrett to pop out. Yes, unfortunately, that was 48 years ago today, and I was heartbroken. Uh, 31-year-old Southpaw reliever who holds a 6.1 World Series Classic Games without gimmick up in a run to recording two saves as the first pitcher to appear in all seven games of World Series. So Darryl Knowles could do it all. And let's fast forward to 2000. The news isn't much better, my friends, and I apologize. On this date in 2000, the longest World Series game ever played. The Yankees took on the Mets in Game 1 of the World Series in the dreaded Bronx. And thanks to Jose Vizcayano's 12th inning two-out single, the Mets lost 4-3 to three in 4 hours and 51 minutes. Now, the victory surpassed the streaks uh, established by Murderers Row Clubs as the present Bronx Bombers won their 13th World Series game. Uh, what else is going on? Uh... Let's see. Let us see. Uh, we have birthdays. We always celebrate birthdays here. If you're a man and had a birthday, you're, you get recognized on this show. So how about a happy birthday wish to Dickie Gonzalez? Who remembers Dickie Gonzalez? Pitched 59 innings for us in 19, 19, 2001. Ward number 39 had a 4.88 ERA. All his appearances, except for seven, were in relief. So, well, I shouldn't say. So, he basically was a split reliever and a starter, starter at the same time. Started seven games, relived in nine, relieved in nine. And uh, he was drafted by the Mets. But then the Mets then traded him with Bruce Chen and Luis Figueroa for Scott Strickland and Mike Watson and Philip C. Bell on April 5th, 2002. Who else is celebrating a birthday as you're looking at the birthday cake and can't wait to eat it? And you're waiting for me to finish so you can blow out the candles? Well, Jim Henderson, who was with us in 2016. Who remembers Jim? 44 games, 35 innings pitched, 4.37 ERA. All his appearances were in relief, and he won number 51. Uh, who else is celebrating a birthday? Glad you asked. How about Danny Herrera? 2011, he was with us for 16 games, pitched 8 innings. He was a one-out specialist, and he was traded with Adrian Rosero by the Milwaukee Braves and New York Mets in exchange for Francisco Rodriguez. Remember K-Rod and his turbulent time with the Mets? Well, we traded him to get Danny Herrera. And how about Jose Lobaton from 2018? Seems like these guys played a long time ago. It was only three years ago, and he wore number 59. 
Had 49 at-bats with the Mets. Nothing too stellar, mind you. Uh, batted 143 when on-base percentage 216. Uh, but it's Jose's birthday, and he turns 37 today. Uh, now, what else is going on? The greatest baseball group in, in Facebook for the New York Mets, New York Mets Baseball Way of Life. And here comes my shameless plug. If you're not a member of the group, please do join. We're New York Mets Baseball Way of Life on Facebook. Yeah, Facebook may be changing its name, so I may have to figure out what the new name's going to be in a week or so. But don't let that fool you. You can still join on the platform we call Facebook. So good luck in doing so. As always, we have great content. Uh, we do this podcast, so if you're not subscribed to the podcast, it's New York Mets Baseball Way of Life. Uh, it's a podcast you can find on all. I think every platform carries us now. On our two YouTube channels, which is uh, Baseball Way of Life and Utopian Baseball Universe. And we broadcast live on New York Mets Baseball Way of Life, Baseball Way of Life, and the Utopian Baseball Universe when we do these Mets spots. So <clears throat> in our group, we discussed a few things. We kind of brought out what the greatness of Francisco Lindor really is. People don't realize how good he really is, but there's only three shortstops in Major League history who have recorded the following numbers in their first seven big league seasons. 1,000 hits, 150 home runs, and a baseball war of 30 or better. Who are those cats? Ernie Banks, Cal Ripken Jr., and Francisco Lindor. Amazing. Oh, and then we also gave tribute to the 1986 Mets, who after losing the first two World Series games at home on this date in 1986, beat the Red Sox at Fenway 7-1. Lenny Deitch's first inning home run marks the third time in history in which a Met leadoff hitter has homered in the initial inning of Game 3 of the Fall Classic. Isn't that ironic? A.G. did it in 69, Garrett did it in 73, and they all did it in the first frame of the uh, World Series. Uh, our question today is, with the Mets having difficult, difficulty signing director of baseball operations, we asked why is it that difficult for the Mets to hire a prominent official to fill that capacity? Yeah, Daniel Murphy said, might not be able to handle one of the top baseball markets. Ciro Grassi said they should stop looking for big names and go for unknown talent. And I think that's the approach they're going to do. Uh... And David J. Rubin says he wants to discuss this particular topic. And folks, David J. Rubin will be on tomorrow's broadcast, 11.30 Eastern, 8.30 Central. He'll be our first guest on New York Mets Baseball Way of Life. And I'm sure he'll have a lot to talk about. Dan Weiner came and said, like him or not, Jeff Luno may be the guy. Beltran as his manager. If no one else wants it, you can bet Luno does. He's getting no credit for the Astros now. And look at them. And by the way, he'll come cheap. And that is an interesting thing. Jeff Luno did build the winner the right way in Houston, so we have to consider him definitely. And how about Brett Beatty? He's ripping up the Arizona Fall League, and he was the uh, Fall League Hitter of the Week. And I can't wait to see him in the Met uniform. Uh, fantastic. Fantastic news coming from the Arizona Fall League. And we did a poll. Which type of director of baseball operations should the Mets sign? The options were a young, up-and-coming baseball exec with limited experience, or B, a seasoned, exp seasoned experienced GM type. Well, 100% of you said you want the young and up-and-coming baseball executive. And the way the game is played now, 
It has changed. Let's admit it. It has changed. You have to be willing to adapt to today's game. And I think a young mind who thinks out of the box probably is the way to go. Yes, this curmudgeon old get-off-my-own guy is agreeing. I, I, I am young in baseball thought, and I think you do have to change with the times. Now, as we end up every broadcast, as I take a sip of Joe, not Joe, water. I need Joe because I, I thought this was coffee at first. Here is today's Mets trivia and Jeopardy question. Today's trivia question was, who was the last Met player to wear number 42 for the Mets? Today's Jeopardy. You want to hear the music? Okay, two clues. Signed with the New York Mets as a free agent on January 18, 2014. And he was born in Long Beach and was captain of the baseball team at Chaminade High School in Mineola, New York. Okay, the answer to our trivia question, which was, who was the last Met to wear number 42? It was Mo Vaughn. And congrats to our Met historian, Harvey Portis, on being the first to answer that one. And our Jeopardy, two clues, as I mentioned before. Signed with the Mets as a free agent on January 18, 2014. And he was born in Long Beach and was captain of the baseball team at Chaminade High School in Mineola, New York. Well, the correct answer to that uh, response, the correct response to those two clues is, who is John Lannon? Remember old lefty John Lannon? It's pretty good Washington, didn't do too much with us. But our West Coast Met superfan David J. Rubin was the first one to hop on this. So that concludes our Jeopardy and Trivia. And I think you're ready to conclude on me. I've been yapping for a long time. So again, thanks for watching, listening, whatever you do to hear my dulcet tones bring about my opinions to you guys. And don't forget tomorrow, I'm probably going to do two shows. One's going to be live with David J. Rubin. We're just going to have an open forum with one of the big Mets super fans out there. And I might do my regular broadcast just highlighting what's going on on that day in Met activity. I think David's going to have a lot to say. So tune in 1130. And I think after that, I'm going to be doing my uh, usual daily podcast on the Mets. So enjoy the beautiful weather out there, isn't it? So enjoy the beautiful day. Uh, big game tonight in baseball. Yes, we promote other baseball games. It's not always about the Mets here. And it should be a classic. Dodgers with their back to the wall, which makes the game even more intriguing. See if they can do it at home and then carry it over to Atlanta. Uh, we'll talk again tomorrow. And as always, thanks for being a Met fan. It means you're the greatest group in the world. And Joey Bookholz, who's co-administrator of this group, who allows me to uh, access, well, I'm now co-administrator of his group too. Yeah. Yeah. He uh, said the Braves wrap up tonight. So, Joey, if you're wrong, you will be noted on tomorrow's broadcast as being wrong. That's what I say about making predictions. But we'll see. He could be right. Or he could be wrong. Another reason why you should tune in tomorrow. Take care, guys. Enjoy the day, and we'll speak soon.